Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture, BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Welcome back to the Food Therapy Podcast. We are so excited to have Dr. Natasha Larmy on and truly, like, truly, truly so excited. So Natasha, why don't you start off and tell our listeners about the work you do and how you got into this work? First of all, thank you, both of you, for having me. Uh, I love doing podcasts. It's like my favorite thing in the world to do. So whenever anyone approaches me, I'm like, yay! <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a GP, which I guess it's, it's kind of an unusual thing. In, in England, we have this kind of primary care physician that takes on the role, so many different roles. In, in, in the US, I guess, you know, you, you often will go and see a specialist when you have a problem. Like if you have a gynecological problem, you see a gynecologist. If you have a, a mental health problem, you, you see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You've got a heart problem, you see a cardiologist. But in the UK, unless you're dying or, or not quite that bad, but unless you have a very serious condition, you'll probably come and see a GP and the GP will look after it. So all the regular gynecology stuff, pediatrics, psychiatry, pretty much everything, you see your GP. So I have this amazing job where I get to see patients from like every age, every condition, and every single time it's a different thing. So I, I love my job and you kind of like stick around for long periods of time. So there are patients that I've known for many years and, and their kids grow up and it's a lovely job. Um, I graduated medical school in 2003. I started general practice in 2009. Um, and you know, I always say that I've been in a big body. I've been a fat doctor since I was in my early twenties. And um, that was something that caused me great deals of shame for most of my life until about six months ago, actually, if I'm honest with you. Um, a year ago, in fact, a year ago in a few days time, uh, I turned 40, the big 4-0, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic lockdown. And um, I was treating patients with COVID and I had to do a risk assessment at work and they wanted me to work out my BMI and I hadn't weighed myself for a very long time. So I did weighed myself and found out that I was 40 kilograms overweight according to their standard and that my BMI was just over 40 which it had never been before and so I panicked I had a real panic and I thought to myself I've got to do something about this so I did what I've always done which is I went on a diet uh, quite a sensible diet all things considered this time around it wasn't too much of a fad uh, just calorie restrictions, increasing your exercise levels, that, you know, kind of what we would cons consider to be healthy way to lose weight. Um, and that worked. I lost a fair, fair amount of weight in a short period of time, as you always do, uh, or not always, but almost always do. And then um, I went through a period of depression, which is almost always what happens with me after I start dieting for a few mm. months. Um, 
And then I kind of went through this period of depression, which which coincided with COVID. And, it, you know, it was, it was a difficult time for all of us, I think. And, you know, I have, I have a history of chronic depression. I've had depression on and off for many years. Mm-hmm. But I think I got to the stage where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm 40. You know, like my mum, like she died when she was 69. I don't, I don't, if I, you know, if I live to be as long as, she, to old as she was, I'm, I'm running out of time and I can't keep doing this forever. There's got to be a better way. So I started to explore. And as I explored, I kind of accidentally came across the body acceptance community. I didn't really know it existed. I started following a few accounts. And through that, I followed some more accounts. I got into Instagram in my 40s, which was amazing story in of itself. And I just started to get involved in the community. And as I did that, I started to learn about um, health at every size. And um, I'm going to mention her. I've never mentioned her before. She's going to be furious. But I have a great friend, Jeanette. Um, I say great friend. We've only known each other for a few months, but she feels like a really good friend. And um, she used to come on like all my posts and she'd be really, really nice. And she'd comment, but sort of go, yeah, that's really great. I love that. But have you ever thought about, you know, she was very gentle. She's very kind. And she is um, an, a, a haze-aligned um, nutritionist. Mm. You know, she's kind of like you guys. She's She's got that that kind of she's amazing and she's been doing intuitive eating coaching so she kind of started teaching me about intuitive eating and then that was a really really long way of saying that I started to realize that there is a better way and actually the way we're doing it at the moment is not only you know bad it's actually dangerous it's terrible it's dangerous it's harming people and something needs to change and once your eyes are open like you just can't shut them ever it's, again That's it's it, so right? true once you see it you can't unsee yep. it and once you learn it you can't unlearn it um right. and, and i want to go back to what you were saying because you know as it relates to mental health and dieting because that is an aspect that i think that people sort of gloss over and they don't realize how you know, harmful dieting can be. I know for myself, like when I was dieting, my panic disorder was probably the worst that it was ever because I was not eating enough carbs. I wasn't eating enough calories to sustain my energy. Um, And so if you can kind of speak to the intersection between dieting and mental health and like the role that it plays. Well, I, I was at a really interesting lecture not that long ago by a psychologist, a fantastic psychologist who doesn't, she doesn't talk about mental health. She talks about brain health. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. It was really, it was really inspiring and challenging because I think a lot of people think of mental health as something that is, it's not part of the actual body's function, but your thoughts, your emotions, your, your, your experiences, your feelings, these are all part of your brain's normal human function. And when your thoughts and emotions are all over the place, then that's a sign that your brain is not functioning at full capacity. And and that's so important to remember, you know, if you've got heart disease um, and you know that your heart is not functioning properly, you're going to go out of your way to do whatever it takes to look after your heart, whether that means, you know, stopping smoking or taking medication or maybe going for lots of walks or whatever it is, you're going to do whatever you can to protect and to look after, to nurture your heart. But we forget about the brain. The brain requires up to 25% of our daily calorie intake. Our brain requires energy. When we starve our bodies, we don't just starve our you know, muscle. Actually, the brain is using up the most amount of energy every day. So we're starving our brain. And then we wonder why we're panicking, why we're mm. getting depressed, why we're getting all sorts of things. Well, of course, your brain is not functioning properly. And, and all the evidence, really, it, there's no question about it, shows that, that dieting and intense 
intentional weight loss or even exercise with a focus on weight loss can have massively damaging effects on your mood and on your eating patterns, which mm. leads to disordered eating, which we all know can lead to eating disorders. And that's, again, another part of mental health we don't talk about, yeah. but it's important. I'm so fascinated already. <laughs> I can completely relate to the mental health side of everything. I mean, my disordered eating, eating disorder was fueled from the other side, right? So it's like, I actually had all this anxiety and then that need yes. to control fueled into the disordered eating habits mm -hmm. and all, all of that mm -hmm. icky stuff that uh, we experience. But I'd love if you talked a little bit about like the mental health side is so important, but what about like, the actual physical effects of dieting, whether it's like weight cycling or just like what's going on biologically within our bodies. Right. Well, our bodies are, are, are designed to survive, right? I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolution to help us to survive. When you, when you start to change or mess around with your calories intake or energy intake or your energy expenditure, to begin with, your body sort of just reacts as it normally would. It's kind of shocked and it does what it's supposed to do. It's like, okay, survival mode. So um, if you, for example, stop eating carbohydrates, your, your brain needs carbohydrates. And if, you don't, if you're not consuming any, your body has to basically make sugar from somewhere. So it has to take some of your glycogen which is like your, your energy stores and turn it into sugar. And so what will happen is, is that you will lose some weight. Part of that weight is, is actually just water. It's just plain old water. And, and, and part of it is, you know, coming from the fat stores. 25% at least of it is coming from your muscle store. So you're basically wasting your muscles away as well, which is not particularly helpful. But what you'll find is almost inevitably you'll lose some weight. How, how could you not, you know? But people seem to think that energy balance is a simple case of what goes in and, you know, what comes out. Uh, this is based on the first law of thermodynamics, which does not apply to the human body, okay? That's physics. We're talking about human biology, two completely separate things. The first law of thermodynamics does not apply here because there are external forces. And some of the most important external forces are your body's way of saying, hey, we're starving. <laughs> Literally, we're starving. Uh, this isn't right. Something's going on. So I'm going to hold on to whatever I can. So your body is programmed to hold on to you, to your weight, to your energy, to your energy stores. It will not allow you to starve and to waste away. And so you, what you'll find is that eventually your, your weight loss will plateau. And most people cannot maintain um, that kind of consistency that is required from these from, from dieting or any form of dieting. Um, so they either develop an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So like you say, there's a need to control and that need gets stronger and stronger and stronger and they obsess with food more and more and more yeah. until it becomes the most important thing that happens in your life. If you look at the um, starvation experiments, and I'm going to say Minnesota. It was Minnesota, yeah, it wasn't it? Minnesota. Starvation experiment. Yep. Minnesota starvation experiment. I mean, this was like 100 years ago. But one of the things that happened when they took these healthy men and they starved them essentially for a few months was they became obsessed, obsessed with food. They couldn't think of anything else. These were intelligent men, went who were studying, you know, had normal lives. And all of a sudden, all they could think about is food. And that's what will happen to you if you keep dieting because your brain's like, we need food, we need food, we right. need food. And that's a survival You're tactic. Yeah, your body's just trying to survive. And if you keep forcing yourself to go against your human nature, what happens is eventually you really begin to mess with your with your with your 
basic human biology. And we, we don't know exactly that happens. You know, do we start messing with our own genetics? There's definitely a hormonal component. Uh, we know that we mess west with our with our metabolic rate. So our basal metabolic rate slows down because the body's like, I'm going to hold on to this energy however I have to. What happens is that eventually your weight plateaus. And all the evidence shows that short term, yes, you will lose weight. Long term, you'll almost certainly gain it back. And most of the statistics out there show between a 90, up to 95% people will regain that weight within five years. And actually 67% or so, two thirds or so, will actually gain more weight than they started with. And we call this weight cycling. And weight cycling is definitely bad for you. Weight cycling has been shown to um, in, increase your insulin resistance, so lead to type 2 diabetes. Uh, weight cycling has been been shown to cause stress so your adrenal cortex which just sits above your kidneys releases all of these stress hormones including like glucocorticoids cortisol they are the steroids but basically steroids so your body is releasing steroids and everybody knows that long-term steroids can cause masses of damage it's been linked to everything from cancer to to heart disease to you name it every disease under the sun has been linked to steroids in some way or other. It also reduces your immunity. So you're far mm. more prone to get infections. That's just a few ways that I can think of that weight cycling damages your body, but it does cause massive damage to your body. And the sad thing is that the studies show the more you diet, the more it damages your body. So one diet, a little bit of damage. Five diets, a mm. lot more diets. Ten years diets in your life. I mean, lots of years of dieting. And this is what happens. And, you know, I often talk about this with my sister. We grew up in the same home. We have similar genetics. We had the same very, very messed up childhood. Um, and yet she and I have quite different bodies. And I think it is because I obsessed with my weight from when I was very young. I dieted from when I was a kid and I have been dieting ever since. And my sister's never been on a diet in her life. Not really. I mean, sometimes she's like, maybe I shouldn't have that third bar of chocolate today, but that's about it. She's always been so cool about her weight and she's just smaller. She is a smaller person. And I'm sure that the damage that I've done to my body, it's, you know, it's not fixable now. I've come to terms with it. It is what it is, but it isn't the right way. And especially for the younger generations with got to stop telling them that this is the right thing to do because it's getting worse and worse and worse with every generation. So Natasha, you know, you're saying all this, obviously Laura and I are like nodding our heads throughout this entire interview, but why is weight loss then the golden solution among all healthcare providers? I have clients who go in for a headache and they're told to lose weight. They have gastric pain. Oh, you should lose weight. And so when the research is showing, like not only do diets fail, but they're actually negatively harming people's health. Why do we continue to prescribe weight loss? Yes. And actually, more importantly, diets haven't been shown to improve health, right? Like there's no evidence that weight loss improves health over the long term. So not only is it bad for you, but also there's no evidence that it's good for you. And if you're a doctor who is supposed to doing what's, be doing what's in your best interest for your patients and doing no harm, surely weight loss should be the exact opposite of what you prescribe, right? Like nobody should be prescribing weight loss, but everybody does. And there's lots of reasons for that. I think the first one is that people don't know. Doctors genuinely don't know. They've not heard the evidence. When they hear the evidence, they don't believe the evidence because of, you know, this kind of confirmation bias we talk about. You know, I believe what I believe. And anything you tell me different is, is a power 
paradox. It's a, you know, it's, 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 it's you cherry picking the data, you know, it's you with an agenda. Like they can't listen, they can't hear, they don't want to hear because, you know, it goes against everything they've been taught. So there is a genuine, I think, lack of understanding. There's also bias, plain old bias. We've got to remember there's a beautiful study by Sean Phelan and his team from, I think like a few years ago, looked at 4,732 medical students. And what it showed was that um, about 67%, about two thirds of them um, had significant explicit anti-fat bias in the first year of medical school and by explicit anti-fat bias i mean they disliked fat people they you know they agreed with statements that said things like you know i i i don't like fat people they make me uncomfortable they they um blamed fat people um they're fat because of x y and z you know they don't eat they don't they eat too much they don't exercise etc and also they had a fear of becoming fat themselves and fear of fatness is actually a form of explicit anti-fat bias you know like i can't possibly get fat that's the worst thing that could happen that's actually bias so that's explicit bias and then there's implicit bias implicit is unconscious bias bias we're not even aware of and in order to to sort of even it's it's determined that you have it. You've got to do an implicit bias test. The implicit bias test was showing up to 75% of um, trainee doctors, first year medical students were biased against fat people. So you start medical school already not liking fat people. And then you go through years and years of medical training, which is in part influenced by drug companies and the weight loss industry. There's a lot of money in both of those things, right? I mean, just look at Novo Nordisk and how much positive advertising they're paying for at the moment because they're you know they've just released this brand new weight loss drug that everyone's talking about you know they know that they're sitting on a gold mine they know that they can make a lot of money out of this so this is a problem so in a way that that's influencing us so there's there's bias there's there's you know we've always believed one thing we can't possibly believe anything else is true um and i think that that those three things in combination just as a start you know makes us absolutely I wouldn't say hate, hate's a strong word. Maybe for some of us we hate, but certainly dislike fat folk. You know, we just, we don't like them very much. We, we, we don't want them to be fat. We don't like the idea of being them being fat. So we think the solution to their problem is to, to tell them to lose weight. Now they will, most doctors will tell you, yes, but look at the studies. The studies show that, you know, People with heart disease are X times more likely to have it if they're, you know, obese and blah, blah, blah. You know, they can quote all of these statistics. And I often say, yes, absolutely, I agree with you. There is a correlation. But nobody has ever bothered to get to the bottom of why this correlation exists. They just are presumed that one caused the other. And that presumption was terrible. How, how could we make such a presumption? We don't make that kind of presumption with anything else. It's got to do with our own bias, our own preconceptions, um, and an industry that is financially invested in keeping us under the illusion that weight loss is the way forward because if it isn't then think how much money they stand to lose and it's the only way forward when it comes to weight stigma because that's what we're talking a lot about you know how does weight stigma play a role in these studies too because they don't show weight stigma in a lot of these studies and as you were saying the studies aren't causational they're correlational so can you talk about you know how weight stigma plays a role in healthcare and what is the impact of that on someone's mental and physical health right well there aren't enough studies that that sort of show the correlation between weight stigma and poor health outcomes 
But there are some studies and there's no question that people who experience weight stigma are significantly more likely to develop all sorts of conditions, including like heart attacks. And so there are some studies that show this now. But what we do know is what the impact of weight stigma, how it actually impacts people. And it works. It works on both sides of the table, really. If you're a doctor and you're stigmatizing a patient, in other words, a patient comes to see you. You're biased. You believe that fat is wrong. Thin is right. Fat is bad. Thin is good. And it's going to affect how you make your clinical decisions. So it's going to impact your diagnosis, your management, you know, whether you take symptoms seriously, whether you blame things on weight loss, whether you delay treating people. Also, your bias may make you think, you know what, this person is lazy. They're they're not very disciplined. I'm not going to bother. So I won't even bother. I'll just like, you know, send them away with a bariatric surgery referral because that's the easy way to go because I don't have time to sit here and ask them whether they exercise or, you know. So there's that there's that kind of disconnect. So already your doctor's not in your corner. It's not advocating for you. But the most important part that weight stigma plays is the, is the impact on the patient. When you feel stigmatised, and by stigmatised, I mean made to feel ashamed, um, made to feel, you know, discriminated against, then you're going to develop a very poor relationship with your healthcare professional. So you're going to, you're not going to trust them because why would you trust someone that's stigmatizing you? You'll, you'll feel unable to communicate with them. You won't be able to share all of your symptoms. So you'll hide things from them. You'll give them answers that you think they want to hear rather than the answers that they actually need to hear. Um, you are also far less likely to comply with their advice. You know, they tell you to go home, try this, that, and the other. You're less likely to comply with them because you've been stigmatized. And um, most importantly, you are likely to want to avoid them in the future. And I think this is the key here is that patients will avoid their doctors for fear of being stigmatized. I have heard of so many stories now. People will send me messages and say, I'm, you know, I've got this breast lump, but I don't want to go and see my doctor because they're going to tell me that it's, you know, it's because I'm fat. And I'm like, please, please go and see your doctor. It's a breast lump. But this is where we're at. We're at a place where people are afraid to show their doctors a mole that has changed, a lump that has developed. You know, they've been diagnosed with like high blood pressure or whatever, but they're afraid to go back because they haven't managed to lose the weight. So now it's like five years and they've still got this high blood pressure. No one's treated it. This avoidance is so key because when you actually look at that kind of avoidance, you see what an impact it plays. There was a study that was done. This is a hugely important study that no one talks about. It was done in 2016. It was based on the previous pandemic to affect this con- uh, the, the world, not this country, the world, uh, which was the swine flu pandemic. Now that was in 2009. The study came out 2016, seven years later. It was a meta-analysis done by a group of people, by the way, who were thoroughly sort of invested in proving that fatness was a bad thing. These were not health at every size advocates in any way, shape or form. They did a meta-analysis and they found that there was definitely a a link between um, being fat or as they call it, obesity and swine flu death. No question about it. However, they also realized that there was a link between swine flu death and delayed treatment. When you adjusted for delayed treatment, the link between swine flu death and obesity disappeared. What that shows is that fat folk were dying of swine flu because of delayed treatment. Now, we don't know why the treatment was delayed because the study didn't look into that, but you've got to ask yourself, like, did we learn any lessons from the last pandemic? Because we're in the middle of a really big pandemic now and lots and lots of lots of people are dying. And in case you hadn't noticed, a lot of them are fat. And you've got to ask yourself the question, 
Is their treatment delayed 10 years from now? Is there going to be a study that comes out that shows the same things? Are we going to realize that, you know, our aunties and uncles and parents and children and, you know, friends and co-workers have died not because they needed to die, but because of weight stigma, which led to medical, you know, avoidance of the medical profession, which led to delayed treatment, which led to death. Is that what we're going to find? Because it'll be a tragedy if we do. And, you know, some would say, oh, no, that's not possible. But it happened last time and no one even mentions it. No one even talks about it. The study is kind of irrefutable. The evidence is there. So, avoidance in healthcare to me is just like the key and it's why I do what I do because at the end of the day I cannot have one more person say to me in my office I was so afraid to come and see you because and I'm just like every time I hear it it like it grates on me because I think you shouldn't be afraid to come and see a doctor that's the opposite of what you should be you know afraid of I am absolutely (laughs) (laughs) like all of this is so crazy and for Research, like that's a huge component that research doesn't look into is the delay of care. When I was in my clinical internship, the amount of people that I saw, whether they were in smaller bodies or bigger bodies, most of the time when they were in the hospital, it was because they hadn't seen their doctor in X amount of years. They had no idea that they had crazy glucose levels or A1C or whatever. And it had turned into all of these horrible conditions. And most of the time, it was because they had no idea that anything was going on because they didn't go to the doctor. And even speaking from someone who's in a smaller body, like I almost like going to the doctor for the validation of like, oh, you're doing so well, you exercise and you do this and you do that. And it's like, that's so messed up. And I can't even imagine what it feels like to be on the other end of that spectrum because I would never want to go to the doctor. And that's such a huge part in all of this. So people who are having that fear of going to the doctor, like how one, how do they find a Hazeline doctor Two, And for anybody who doesn't know what Hayes is, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but it's health Mm. at every size. And how do you handle a doctor's visit if they're not Mm. Hayes aligned or how do you find Mm. a Hayes aligned doctor? So I think in the States, it's a little bit easier because you have a directory. Um, We actually have a directory in the UK, but like there's very few doctors on it. It's also harder in the NHS to pick a doctor. And I think also in the States, I guess it depends on where you live. Like if the only doctor in like a hundred miles is not hazel eyed, like, tough right um i think if you want to find one there is a directory i mean i I wonder if you could maybe link it to the podcast or something because there is a directory that you can go on to and you can find um but it's um again you know in the grand scheme of things like we're a very 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 Mm -hmm. small percentage of the medical prevention and um i actually uh, when i talk about you know I, i am health at every size aligned uh i have read the books I'm a big fan of Lindo Bacon and um, Lucy Aframore and all the other kind of amazing um, researchers. Uh, I've read the evidence. It's, you know, pretty irrefutable if you ask me. But actually, when I talk to my colleagues and I'm trying to talk about what I'm doing, I don't actually say we should be health at every size practitioners. I say we should be weight inclusive Mm -hmm. or, or weight neutral practitioners, because if nothing else, that's dead easy. 
right? Like you don't even have to have read the health at every size evidence to be a weight inclusive practitioner. A weight inclusive practitioner simply says, I'm just not going to bring weight loss or weight into this conversation. I'm still going to have conversations about lifestyle. I'm still going to have conversations about, you know, your A1C or your cholesterol, your blood pressure. I'm going to talk about joyful movement. I am going to talk to you about, you know, nutrition. I'm just not going to talk about weight loss. When I say to you, look, I think you need to go out and, and do extra exercise it's really going to benefit your health that's because i've got studies that show that exercise is going to benefit your health nothing to do with weight loss i just know it's going to benefit your health but also when you put that focus on weight loss people are you know they've got the wrong goals in mind and when you measure success by measuring weight loss um it's very disheartening because what if i start exercising and i gain weight or if i don't shift weight but i'm still exercising and studies make it very clear that that's going to have a massive impact on my health if i'm so obsessed with weight loss as i said before you know i become fixated it's all i can think about wait 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 and then i don't enjoy exercise mm-hmm. and then exercise becomes a punishment for me or it becomes a, a, a way of controlling where it becomes it becomes an addiction it becomes a disorder i mean it, you know it can do all sorts of things whereas if you're just moving because you like moving and because it's good for your body if you think to yourself it's good for my brain health good for my heart health good for my hormonal health yeah let's get out and do some exercise you're far more likely to stick at it right because you don't care whether you lose weight or gain weight you're just just doing it for yourself so we don't need to tell people to lose weight because actually when you tell people to lose weight, what do you do? You tell them to eat less and exercise more, which is stupid and doesn't work. But actually exercising more is really great. So why not just say that anyway? And rather than saying eat less, because, you know, come on guys, that is like basic nutrition. <laughs> this is not going to work. If you want to talk to somebody about how much they should or should not be eating, send them to a dietitian. That is what their job is. They have studied it for years. If you're a doctor, you've studied it for all of five <laughs> seconds. You know more about yes. nutrition from what you have read in a magazine, what you have seen on Facebook and what you have tried yourself than what you learned at medical school. I know this because I am a doctor. You want to talk to your patient about diet, send them to a professional and then save the weight loss because you don't need to do it. And that's all I do as a weight inclusive practitioner. All I do is I just don't talk about weight loss. I don't weigh my patients unless it's absolutely clinically necessary, which is once in a blue moon. Um, I, I, you know, I make sure that I'm making them comfortable by, you know, making sure the chairs that they sit in fit and, you know, that they're not going to feel like, they, you know, they've got arms that they can't fit in the chair properly, making sure that the cuff that I use to check their blood pressure, you know, is just there, boom, put it on, don't even like look at it, don't bat an eye. When they're undressing in front of me and they're super, super anxious because they are, I'm really nice about it. I make them feel comfortable. I put them at ease. If they apologize for their body, I give them a stern telling off and say, <laughs> not in my doctor's office, you don't know. We, we love our bodies in this office. And, you know, I do this all the time. My patients are used to it now. They don't apologize really? for their bodies anymore. They don't apologize that they haven't shaved their legs or that they're a bit sweaty or that one boob is bigger than the other. Like they just don't apologize. And so this is how to be a weight inclusive practitioner. It's not hard, is it? Like did not require any investment of any kind. It just required you to remove a weighing scales from your office. You're not going to find many doctors that do this yet. If I have my way, there'll be more and more, but not yet. So if you want to have that kind of a weight inclusive consultation with a doctor, there are a few things that you can do. Um, as you said, first of all, go find one. If you can't find one, um, have an advocate that sits with you. I'm a strong believer in getting advocates to come in with you. Um, 
ideally fierce ones that are going to defend you like a, a mother or a, a friend, like a bolshy friend, you know, like that's what you need. Um, have an advocate that's going to be able to intervene when you can't find the words because none of us can, like myself included. I can't say no. When someone says, I want to weigh you, the answer is, I don't want you to weigh me, but I've never been able to say no. But if I have an advocate in with me and my advocate can just turn around and go, sorry, I'm going to stop you there. She doesn't want to be weighed end of discussion no one can force you to be weighed if you don't want to um other things that you can do write stuff down on a piece of paper have some handy questions that you want to ask your doctor um ones that i particularly like are you know um okay can i just ask you what you would be saying to me if i you know was in a thin body or okay assuming weight loss doesn't work like what else can i try or okay assuming it isn't my weight what else could be causing my back pain just you know take the weight thing and just like turn it back on them and go yeah but what else but what else but what else get them to think get them to engage their brains sometimes that works depends on the doctor really depends on who you're dealing with if you're dealing with an egomaniac it's just not going to work and that's what might even like make them defensive because they don't even know yes yes right because they don't know and you've hit the nail on the head Lauren they don't know the answer is they don't know they don't know why your knee is hurting so they just blame it on your weight it's so much easier easy right when in doubt it's your weight lose some weight It's, it's it's laziness is what it is so Okay, those are those are some good things. But actually, what I what I advise most of the people that I talk to to do is to actually mm. make it very clear ahead of time. So um, I have a letter on one of the blogs that I wrote. I must make it more readily available. But it's like a letter you can copy and paste, which basically says, "I do not want to be weighed," or like. This is what I do will consent to. This is what I won't consent to. This is why. But actually, you don't have to explain yourself in any way. You don't have to explain why you don't want to do something to a doctor. You can just be like, nah, I'm not doing that. And they have to respect that. It's, yeah. it's called consent. They have to get your consent to do anything. Um, if a doctor starts sort of saying, well, I'm not going to treat you unless you, you know, you do this or do that. I think at that point in time, if you're having that very aggressive consultation, I think that's the time when you take a step back. And you go, okay, thank you very much. You leave the office, then you get home and you write a stinking letter of complaint because there is no way to 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 deal with that kind of a doctor. Like that kind of a doctor just needs to essentially it's like a stressful environment to be yes. in. It makes it a very unpleasant experience. Yes, yeah. Remove yourself from the situation whenever you feel uncomfortable. Just kind of, That's why I'm saying have an advocate that like you can kind of like squeeze and they can be like, okay, I'm going to take over or, you know, you can cut the consultation short. Um, yeah, you've got to remember about the balance of power. Doctors are not, they're not in a position of power or authority over you. Right. First of all, you're paying them to do a job. So they kind of have to do it just like any other service. Um, but also they are bound by a very strict ethical code. You, you must do what's in your patient's best interest. You must not do any harm. You must respect their autonomy. You must respect their confidentiality. You must practice fairly and without discrimination. These are the co- ethical codes that we all, whatever country you work in, must work by. And if you're not doing that, if you're failing to meet those expectations, then you have grounds for complaints, um, possibly even grounds for a lawsuit, depending on what they do and depending on the laws of your country. Right. So remember that doctors are kind of afraid of you, not afraid, afraid, but, you know, they, they don't want the complaint. Complaints are nasty and, and, and they can get very complicated. So you do have some power. And the other thing is a lot of people want their doctor to, to approve of them. They want their doctor's approval. 
And I don't know psychologically where this comes from, but I do think it's true. Like you want the pat on the back from the doctor. You want the doctor to be like, oh, wow, you're doing really well. And then if the doctor says something negative, you feel really hurt by it. You need to keep telling yourself, you know, actually this guy's an idiot. And oh, this woman is horrible. Like I don't care about her opinion. Like repeat that in your mind. Right. Like she's just a doctor. You know, I keep saying to people, yeah, but she's just a doctor. Why do you care what she thinks? And they're like, because she's a doctor. I'm like, but all right. I have is a medical degree. That's all it is. There's nothing special about me. Um, so I think don't be, don't feel like you have to be the polite one. <laughs> you know, if they make you feel really sad, feel free to cry. Because if you break down into floods of tears in front of them, they're probably going to give you what you want because like no one's got time for that. <laughs> I would love to also, and Lauren, we should link, if it's okay with you, Natasha, the letter for a doctor yeah. in the show notes. So people have like yeah, yeah. easy access. But going back to what you were saying about behavioral change, I actually, and she will listen to this. My best friend is a physician and we have really candid conversations all the time because she used to prescribed weight loss. And so I quite simply said to her, you know, if somebody in your size went and had diabetes, would you tell that person to lose weight? And she's like, no. So then I said, why is it any different for someone in a larger body where weight loss is the immediate answer yeah. instead of talking about, you know, high fiber foods, lowering, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so I completely agree with focusing more on behavior at the very least, even if you don't align with health at every size, at the very least, can we focus on behavioral change versus weight? Right, which is why I say I'm like a weight neutral or a weight inclusive GP, because I think mm -hmm. other people can get on board with that. Okay, I don't know that I believe that you can be healthy at every size, but I do believe that weight stigma is bad. So I'm going to just stop stigmatizing my patients. Um, the other thing is that we are becoming obsessed now with bariatric surgery referrals. And I, you know, I've, I've spoken to an orthopedic doctor in the States actually about, um, about this and, and they made a fair point. They were like, yeah, but you know, when you refer to bariatrics, you know, you get dietitian input and you get like, you know, you get other input as well. Same case, same as it is here in the UK. And that's true. But, and, and actually I know some bariatric dietitians who are fantastic and also health at every size aligned. So I'm not criticizing dietitians in any way, shape or form, but I think that when you tell somebody that they need bariatric surgery, you're making a huge statement. You're saying something really big here. You're saying, um, you know, that th this is the end of like, we, we want to mutilate your body in order to fix you because we genuinely believe that that is the only way to make you healthier. It's not true. Like even with diabetes, there's, there's no evidence that sustained weight loss improves diabetes. Actually, that evidence doesn't exist in the short term, first six months, one year. Yeah, sure. But not in the long term. And what's wrong with medication? Like if you've got a thin person with diabetes, you medicate them. You, you don't, you know, you, you try a bit of lifestyle and if it doesn't work, you're like, right, medication. It, it, it's funny how we just look at a different patient and all that's different is that their body is slightly different. And we're like, mm -hmm. you, you need to lose weight, but you, you need to go on medication. The same rules apply to every single human being on the planet. And actually the, the person who is in a bigger body has probably been dieting for a long time. If you ask them, you know, just take a history. How many times you've been on a diet? 10 times. Okay. So you've messed up your body. You're going to need medicating because you're going to have some insulin resistance right now. So let's try and deal with that. Right. Don't tell them to go and mess up their body some more. Like, why would you do that? That's terrible. It's just making the situation worse. I couldn't agree more. And just for like a little bit of a 
anecdotal. Well, I have two anecdotal stories. One, my mom, hopefully she doesn't care that I'm sharing this, but it's a positive story. So <laughs> I don't think she will, but she was having higher levels of blood sugar and a higher A1C, which is for people who don't know is an indicator of, uh, prediabetes, right? So she actually, you know, I don't really know what her doctor said. They probably said she needed to lose weight and me being her daughter, she knows that's not the answer. And she was like, well, I just want to start walking more. Like, I just need to be more active. Like I'm getting older. I can feel my like joints getting stiff. And I was like, that's awesome. I love it. She's been walking so much more. We've been doing these like little challenges, um, but not with like the obsession of like, I have to do this. I have to do this. And she just went to her doctor and her levels came down, which is perfect. incredible. The thing we haven't talked about yet is that there is another way. It's a better way. And it's called intuitive eating. And, and also like part of that is joyful movement. And that's what you're talking about. It's not like we say to people, don't do anything. But if you want to prescribe weight loss, um, rather than prescribing weight loss, you can go, hey, try out intuitive eating. Because actually that has been clinically proven to improve your A1C results. Yes. Sorry to interrupt you, Lauren. Carry on. I want to hear the other story. I mean, this whole conversation, I want to interrupt you because I have so many things to ask you. But the other thing is that I actually went to the doctor. I'll probably go back for my annual this summer, but I had, I have never had abnormal lab values. And I personally always have attributed that to like, oh, I'm so quote unquote healthy. Right. Um, but the first time I actually had high cholesterol, the last time I went to the doctor, And literally exactly what you said. She didn't say anything whatsoever about my weight. She just said, okay, we're going to watch the numbers. And if they go up, we're going to put you on medication. So it's like, you were just assuming since I'm this size that it's not my weight and then we're going to have to put you on medication. Oh, it's probably genetics. But Mm. if a bigger person had that problem, they would say, oh, you need to lose weight because that's the problem. No way in hell it could possibly be your genetics. Like it would be for a thinner person. Yeah. So right. true. That's absolutely right. It's 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 sad, um, but it but it is how we are. And as I said, it comes down to bias. You know, we 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 make assumptions. You know, I don't know how many people have said to me that their doctor was just like, "Well, you need to exercise more," and they're like, "Yeah, great. I'm training for a marathon right now." You know, how much more exercise do you want right. me to do? Right, right. Uh, it, it's an ignorance. And 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 you know what? We get taught from the beginning. First thing we get taught: medicine 101 take a history, take a history. And it's one of the things when I'm training doctors, it's one of the first things I tell them to do. I'm like, take a history, find out about this individual sitting in front of you, find out all of it, you know, because when we look at weight gain, what causes people to gain weight? Part of it's genetics. In fact, some people are saying, some you know experts in Cambridge University are saying up to 70% of it is your genetics. So that's like 70% of your weight is controlled by genes, right. um, hormones, um, but also traumatic childhood experience, like ACE yes. scores, like adverse childhood experiences. These are huge. One of the first things I do whenever I see somebody in a bigger body now, especially if it's a kid or a young person, my first question is, is this a safeguarding issue? Is there some kind of abuse going on in the home? It's my first mm-hmm. question that comes to mind because because the statistics show that people who have experienced sexual trauma as a child, I think like um, 50% of them or more than 50% of them end up um, being in a, in a very large body and, you know, having kind of like type three obesity or something like that. This is, you know, this is sexual abuse, guys. If you're not picking up on stuff like that, you're failing your patient because the solution for them isn't to eat less and exercise more. Right, it's to go right. get some trauma counseling because they were sexually abused when they were a kid, you know, and it's more than that. It's also medications. Um, you know how many medications I put my patients on on a daily basis? 
basis that causes them to gain weight. Pretty much every mental health medication out there causes weight gain. Um, you know, so many medications. So I'm prescribing a pill. I'm like, here, take this. It's going to help you with your, um, you know, schizophrenia. Oh, but by the way, you need to lose some weight. Really? You just gave them a medication that made them right. get fat and then told them to lose weight. Like, where is that coming from? Same goes to medical conditions. Like PCOS is a classic one. I, I could go on and on and on. I could do hours and hours and hours talking about the different reasons why people gain weight. And as a doctor, you looked at that patient with high cholesterol you made a snap decision without even bothering to take a history and then you treated them based on that snap decision it's negligence it is not what we were yeah. taught to do as doctors that is that is failing your patients in the most basic of ways yeah no absolutely and even i always think about when you know people and i, I i've known people who did not go on medication for their mental health because there was a fear of weight gain or their doctor warned them it's going to make you gain weight and they didn't get the help that they needed and it also shows you like how deeply rooted fat phobia is if you rather right. walk around with severe mental health issues right. um instead of you know gaining some of that weight yeah so yeah lauren do you have anything to add i just had a question that popped in my head too because you mentioned a few minutes ago about how somebody, if they're like come in with knee pain, it's like, oh, it's because of their weight. What, is there any research on like, cause I've heard it from clients too, where it's like, well, I'm carrying all this extra weight. Oh, like God. no wonder my joints hurt. Right. <laughs> what is that about? I get so upset with this. Like, oh, wait, where did this come from? This, this, this is clearly someone's like Chinese whispers. This was like a rumor that got like spread and has now become like, you know, this, 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 this canon, like it's, it's everyone believes it. It's, it's nonsense. There's no evidence to show that. Actually, um, there's evidence to show that force on the joints and like these little micro kind of abrasions on the joints actually strengthens the cartilage. That's why we say go out and exercise. That's why we say, you know, walk or run or cycle or do whatever. Actually, what you're doing is you're putting extra pressure on the joints by speeding up. You're putting extra pressure on the joints when you're, you know, lifting weights, you're putting extra pressure on your joints. That's a good thing. Actually, there's no evidence that this damages your joints in any way. The people who have the most amount of serious joint damage are actually like your, your pro athletes, your, you know, your people who had really physical jobs, manual jobs. They're the ones that carry them the have the most amount of like ex you know joint damage on their x-rays but what you have to remember about joint pain is joint pain it's it's pain actually it's not usually seen on an x-ray so of all the people i see with knee pain i do an x-ray say i do 100 x-rays every so often i'll just see like bone against bone and i'm like oh wow that's you need an orthopedic like that's it go <laughs> but for most people i look at it and i'm like it's not much to say, like a little bit of wear and tear, but just like regular wear and tear. But you're in a lot of pain. And then you have to remember that pain is biopsychosocial, biological, psychological, and social. And so when you're looking at pain, you have to think about the psychological and social components of pain. If you're, again, failing to take a history, failing to understand the psychological and social implications of why that person's knee is actually hurting, then you're just focusing on like the biology. You're failing that patient again you know like that a physiotherapist a good quality physical therapist is going to tell you that like it's so much more than just you know joint like rubbing together which is just I mean it's nothing to do with it I also have heard so, even from clients where they're like well during the pandemic I gained weight and now I'm experiencing chronic pain and it's like well is it the weight gain or is it the fact that you've been sedentary for a year because yeah. we've been in a mm -hmm. pandemic yeah um, and again it's and you're anxious like 
And you're anxious. So it goes back to this idea, like we're always using the body as like a scapegoat. Like we tend to blame everything on our body or or I should say our weight gain. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And the mental health piece of it all, like I have felt physical pain when I'm really stressed out. Like I almost feel like I'm sick sometimes. Like I get achy, like I have like a virus or something if I'm really stressed out. And we just love to blame weight for everything. Right. And I mean, people will often say to me, like, oh, you're a doctor. How could you possibly think that being like fat is, is OK for your health? And I always set, circle it back and go, right, great. So define health for me, please. You know, like, what do you mean by health? Like, are you just talking about blood pressure? Because that's not health. If, if blood pressure was the only thing that mattered to your health, I would have a very easy life. I don't spend my days talking to people about blood pressure. Blood pressure is a very, very small part of my job. So is diabetes. So is heart disease. All of those things. Very easy easy to manage actually you've got your medications you, you just you know bish bash bosh you've got your flow chart you follow it easy I spend most of my time talking to people about mental health or so all their physical symptoms that are as a result of psychological input you cannot separate the mind from the body remember what I said brain health 25% of all of your energy input your brain controls everything it controls your whole body you cannot switch your brain off if you really genuinely think that your thoughts are coming from like i don't know like this i don't know what people imagine they are coming from the amygdala inside your brain if you stick yourself under a pet scanner and you're having thoughts and emotions it's going to light up that scanner because our brain is simply functioning and it's complicated pain is is about pain perception. It's about our perception of pain. That's why you'll see like a, a football player can sustain a serious injury and keep on running so they can get that touchdown because that's all they can think about. The adrenaline is flowing. They're focusing on, you know, on the end, mm-hmm. on the end zone. End zone, is that the right thing? Like I'm trying to pretend I know I what football so. is. <laughs> Um, but but you, equally, you could have somebody that like just stubs their toe, but because they're feeling super depressed, that pain can be crushing, you know. Mm. And and that's because of the mental state of that person, not because of the actual injury that they sustained. So pain, uh, all sorts of symptoms, nausea, um, um, palpitations, shortness of breath. My goodness, you name it. Do you know how many people I've had that I've thought have got COVID over the last year? I'm like, this person clearly has COVID. Turns out they were hyperventilating the whole time. It was anxiety. Wow. So, you know, guys, like the mind and the body are completely and utterly linked. You cannot separate them from each other. So when people talk about health, I'm like, well, hang on a second. What do you mean by health? Because if losing weight is improving my diabetes, let's just say it is. It's not, by the way, like I said, but even if it did, but it's trashing my mental health, what difference Mm. does it make? Because my health is still really poor. Yep. Yes. I think when we say health, people immediately equate it to weight. And they don't even think about their mental health and the impact that these diets have on our mental health is massive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a huge piece of like, I don't obviously know what a doctor's education is, but as dietitians, we are always taught, look at the whole clinical picture. And I don't know if it's out of laziness, if it's out of like lack of education, but you can't, like, I wouldn't walk into a hospital room when I was in my clinicals and be like, oh, this person's sedated. Okay, we're just going to give them this. Like, you have to look at their history. You have to look at what medications they're on. You have to look at all these different things. And like, if you see a medical provider and they're not asking about your mental health, they're not asking about all these different things, and they're just looking at a lab value, then that's a huge problem. And and then the other 
component to that, of course, that we haven't covered yet, which is hugely important, is the social element mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- who is this person sitting in front of you? What have they experienced? What race are they? If they are Black, then they have already experienced a great deal of stigma. Their health is already poorer just because of the fact that they were born with more melanin in their skin, right? That's all that happened. They were born extra melanin sites inside their skin. All of a sudden, their life is completely different to a white person so you know if you're not thinking hang on a second like the advice that I'm going to give to this person or the the way that I'm going to treat this person is different it should be because at the very least we know that BMI is completely useless for black people like just don't bother because it isn't accurate it wasn't based no studies were ever done on black black folks so useless but also like you know woman right wasn't it or even women right it was white (laughs) European men that's all we we know right so it's excluded the majority of the world I should point out (laughs) but it's also you know it you know, what about the finances? What about the level of education? What about like, you know, is this person got children? What's this person doing with their life? How many jobs does this person work? Like you can get down to the nitty gritty. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. what kind of stigma has this person already experienced? Because that stigma, as I said, is going to impact your health and your weight. If they've already been stigmatized, even before they gained weight, then they're already at disadvantage. Now they've gained some weight, like they're at an even bigger disadvantage. Like you should be thinking to yourself, okay, this person in front of me I am not gonna focus you know I'm going to try and and help them with the stigma as opposed to mm-hmm. help them to lose weight um and also like are you seriously gonna tell like a mother of three single mother of three who who works two jobs and you know is is barely able to like get it together to put food on the table are you really going to be lecturing her about like making sure she gets enough you know omega-3s and this and that right. and the other? of course right. you want her to have all of those things of course you want her to eat well and nourish her body but also be practical this is somebody who, this is a human being don't be so privileged and that's the problem doctors are privileged yeah. we are supremely privileged individuals mm-hmm. we assume that everyone else has the time and the money and the and the ability to take care of the health the way we do you know i i came to a realization that i had to spend more time working on my mental health and i had to spend more time at home like looking after myself and practicing self care so what did i do i dropped my hours how lucky that I can afford to drop my hours. Mm. I work in a job that pays me enough that I can be like, do you know what? I just want to do 60% now. And that's all right. I do. Who gets to do that? I'm so lucky. What a privilege. So like, you know, we, we're sitting up here with our privilege and then we've got somebody in front of us. Unless you get to know that human being and understand where they're coming from and the social aspects. We've talked about psychological, yeah. but the social aspects. Like, you're again, you're a useless doctor. We're going to have to have you come back because... Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I told you, Natasha is just like a wealth of knowledge. And I had you, so funny, I found you on Instagram and I was like, you have to come on my live. And then all of a sudden, Natasha just like blew up on Instagram. And, you know, you have so such an engaged following and people love what you have to say and you're such a wealth of knowledge and so thank you you so much. Tell our listeners where they can find you um, and see your work. 
Um, so probably not on Instagram at the moment. I'm like, t- I've realized that I'm completely shadow banned on Instagram. I like, you can't find me anymore on Insta. So, um, I mean, you can, if you properly search for my name, but probably the best thing to do is to come on my website, www.fatdoctor.co.uk. Yes. Fat doctor. That is what I am. And I'm very proud of it. Um, and then all my social media channels are linked there. Um, and all the other work that I'm doing, I'm working with the department of health in the UK right now, which is super oh exciting. God. Um, and we're hoping that we're going to start to see some changes in health policy. Um, we just had a, a, a huge, huge win, I guess, for the Hayes community where um, a parliamentary report, this is like, I guess, like a, the equivalent of a Senate report, uh, came out uh, less than a month ago, which basically said, scrap the BMI, stop telling people to lose weight and adopt a health for every size approach within the next 12 months. So the has 12 months now to decide whether or not they're going to follow their own advice or whether they're going to ignore it. It's huge win for us. So, I mean, like the fact that it contained the words health at every size made me like weep with joy. So I am actually excited to, to see what happens over the next year. I think loads of stuff is going to blow up. And I think that as it blows up in the UK, I think it's going to start to work around the world as well. Canada's got there. It's, it's we need to catch up. Yeah. Right. Right. So exciting. And just tell our listeners where they can find you on Instagram as well. And we'll put it all in the show notes. You have to type in, in full, Fat Doctor UK. (laughs) If you type in Fat Doctor, you won't find me. You have to put the UK in because, like I said, Insta doesn't like me at the moment. It's because I keep upsetting certain individuals, (laughs) certain people who feel very threatened. Well, that's a whole other topic of conversation on, um, I know this girl on TikTok who was kind of calling all of this kind of stuff out and they right. deleted her account. Yes, I yeah. saw that. Uh, it's yeah. an issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a completely different issue. There's some really amazing people on Instagram out there, part of this community who have yeah. literally just been destroyed um and which is why i'm trying to move away a little bit about like you know social media is really important but i think if you just have a social media presence and and aren't doing anything else i think it's really hard because social media can control your narrative so yeah yeah yes absolutely well thank you so much natasha this is amazing definitely follow natasha and check out her website Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at foodtherapypod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.